Hi everyone, I'm Jason Scorse and welcome to another episode of Dispatch from the Zombie Apocalypse. I hope everybody is doing great. Today's episode, 20 Years of Terror, you know, relates to the 20 years of the global war on terrorism that uh, George Bush started in 2001 and uh, which Biden seems to be winding down. Although, you know, some of the details of that we will see. But uh, it's been a crazy couple weeks here watching what's going on in Afghanistan. And, you know, I was going to do an episode on the kind of 20 years of, uh, you know, of the war on terror. And, uh, you know, I just figured even though it's a, you know, a little shy of that anniversary with all that's going on, let's just get right into it. I want to just say right up front, you know, what are what are my qualifications to play armchair quarterback here in, you know, major foreign policy issues that, you know, have cost trillions of dollars and, uh, you know, millions of people's lives. My expertise here is as a student of history. I've read a lot of history of foreign policy and war. I have correspondence with a number of Afghanistan and Iraq war veterans who are my friends and former students and neighbors. And I also know a lot of the top people in counterterrorism because of my academic work. So I am not a veteran. I've never fought in a war. I've never been to Iraq. I've never been to Afghanistan. Um, So, you know, take this with however you want. You know, these are just my informed opinions from my conversations and my understanding of history. I want to start, though, with my memories of 9-11, you know, almost 20 years ago, uh, which are, I remember almost like they're yesterday. I was in Berkeley, California, and I was uh, starting my grad program. It had just started maybe a week or two before. And uh, I, you know, back in those days, you had those answering machines with a tape recorder, and they would beep when someone would leave a message. And so I was sleeping, right? The Twin Towers were hit around 9, so it was about 6 a.m., so I was sleeping. I kept hearing my answer machine beeping, and I didn't wake up for a couple hours, but I know I was like, I knew I was going to have a lot of messages, and then, of course, I started just hearing the the crazy messages from folks in New York, you know, telling me what was going on there. My All of my family was in New York, so, you know, of course, I was on the phone, kind of just checking on people. And I do remember, so it was very weird. I didn't have a TV. I didn't have a smartphone then, right? So the way you got information was, you know, either through the internet or through TV. And so when I got to school, people were all glued to the computer screens in the computer lab, reading the news and watching footage. I didn't, you know, watch too much of it. I'm going to be honest. I saw a couple clips of, you know, the, the, the planes hitting the towers. Um, but I, I thought right then it's a lot of violence pornography, Right. And I didn't I'm not one of these people who spent hours on all the YouTube clips and, you know, all the different angles and all that kind of stuff, you know, and and there was some pretty gruesome stuff back then. Right. There were people jumping off the buildings and 
I mean, it was it was horrific stuff, and, and still is, of course. But I, I didn't watch that much. I watched enough to, like, get a sense of what was going on. And then I spent that evening with uh, an old high school friend of mine um, who was in Berkeley as well. And uh, we had both gone to our prom, a high school prom, in the Windows on the World restaurant at the top of the World Trade Center. So, you know, uh, we, we had some connection to that building. It was, you know, not that far from our high school. And I ended up, I didn't know it at the time, but I ended up knowing two people who died in the Twin Towers. One of them I was reasonably, you know, friendly with in high school that I had not stayed in touch with. And then one was just kind of an acquaintance, you know, that I kind of knew. But I, you know, I did end up knowing two individuals who were, were murdered in that in that attack. And, you know, I remember that night on 9-11-2001 seeing the bloodlust in the news footage, even in people who I was close to, seeing this kind of like, those motherfuckers, we got to get them, you know, and I just saw this bloodlust. My initial reaction was, we really better not overreact here. We calmer heads need to prevail or this is going to lead to chaos, right? That, of course, we got to find out who did this. And, of course, it's entirely justified to either kill them or, you know, or, or capture them and try them. You know, I, I had no problem with that. But I knew when I saw the level of bloodlust just being displayed, and again, some of it normal humans, I don't have that. I don't, I don't, I don't have that bloodlust. I'm not saying I don't get angry and mad, but I don't, I don't get that just kind of like all encompassing, like we got to get them, we got to take them out that I just saw. And, and I, I just, I, at that moment, I was even starting to express it to people. I said, you know, we really got to be careful here. We got to like, we can't just lash out, you know, we got to figure out what happened and get the people, but let's not go crazy here. We can make this way worse. And how prescient that was. Boy, do I wish I had been wrong. But I knew it on that day. I knew it on that day that America was going to go down a really bad course. And, you know, I knew it because, of course, it was George Bush and Dick Cheney in the White House. You know, what would it have been like if Al Gore had been president? If the Supreme Court and the Hanging Chads hadn't stolen the legitimate victory from Al Gore and he had been president? My guess is we probably still would have done a pretty heavy invasion of Afghanistan but I think with almost 100% certainty, we would not have invaded Iraq. And, you know, Al Gore was the climate change guy. And here it was, you know, Islamic terrorists, you know, based in, you know, in parts of the world, you know, that, that, that have a lot of animosity to the U.S. because of our presence there and our, our you know, our, you know our, our demand for oil. And maybe he would have turned it around and said, hey, let's get off Mideast oil so we're not dependent on this region of the world. And Let's let them control their resources. I have no idea, right? I, I don't have a crystal ball. But boy, I, I wish we could play that alternative history. I think things would have turned out a lot better if it had not been George Bush and Dick Cheney. Because things turned out so bad, right? By far, the, the, the foreign policy decisions made in those you know, subsequent years, the, you know, the, the prolonged invasion of Afghanistan, not a targeted mission to get Bin Laden and, and Al-Qaeda, and then, of course, the pivot to Iraq and the invasion of Iraq are, are by far the worst policy, foreign policy decisions ever made by a U.S. administration. 
Although I must say the Vietnam War is pretty close. I mean, if you look at the Vietnam War and the millions of people we murdered um, for no reason whatsoever, um, Vietnam's pretty close. But I, I think Afghanistan and Iraq are still number one. And I do want to also point out that, you know, Bush and Cheney are war criminals. Their cabal are war criminals. They lied. They cheated. They stealed. And they are just straight up war criminals and they should be in jail. They never should be celebrated. I was so, so upset during the Trump years of people saying, oh, George Bush wasn't that bad. Yes, he was. Okay, I remember those times. I know what he did. I remember it very, very well. And if not for Trump being a straight up traitor and insurrectionist, I'd still put Bush as the worst president ever. I think he's still, you could still make an argument that Bush is even a worse president than Trump. Uh, although, again, when you're, you know, plot to overthrow the country and lead an insurrection, that's a that's a tough one to, to beat out. The wasted lives and the resources from these 20 years of war and terror, the estimates are somewhere in the kind of range of $6 trillion between all the wars, millions, you know, or at least low millions of people murdered, killed, or severely wounded. Obviously, you know, many Tens of thousands of those being U.S., but many, many more being Afghanis and Iraqis. And then, you know, how at once ISIS spilled over into Syria, Syrians as well. You know, bin Laden in his wildest dreams couldn't have imagined how much we would damage ourselves. And this is, this is a key lesson that I just think these last 20 years just, you know, it's, it's like bright neon light flashing, right? Great powers almost always self-implode, right? They are rarely threatened by external forces stronger than them. And let's think about it in this context. We had a few guys with box cutters who caused the United States to go on 20-year killing rampage, destabilizing multi multiple countries, wasting trillions of dollars, and you know, killing tens of thousands of its own citizens in the process, obviously, our, our military. So, you know, I'm not an expert on this stuff, but somebody who is is Spencer Ackerman. And in the show notes, I'm going to put an interview that he did on The Weeds about a new book that he wrote where he's really looking at the last 20 years in this, you know, of this war on terror. And it's really fascinating because he brings it back even to the Oklahoma City bombing that preceded 9-11 by almost a decade. And he contrasts that with 9-11 where... You know, Timothy McVeigh, a white militia guy, nobody started talking about, you know, white nationalism, white supremacy. What's the problem with those white Christians that they're terrorists, right? No one took one white Christian man as a kind of exemplar of an entire class, which is exactly what we did with um, the 9-11 attacks when then all of a sudden we said we're in a, you know, civilization war with Islam and jihadism. And that contrast is so chilling, right, that this was a guy who, you know, had blown up a building in the United States, killed almost 200 people, many of them children, and we had no kind of massive response, right? It was just, it was this one guy, let's get him, maybe there's a couple accomplices, we're going to try him, and it's done. And then, you know, something, obviously 9-11 was significantly greater than the Oklahoma City bombing, but it's in the same general category, right? It's a, you know, it's a, a discrete terrorist event. And the contrast of how we reacted to that relative to the Oklahoma City bombing 
is just chilling and really intelligent. He does a great job doing it. He also shows how Obama really missed an opportunity to end the war on terror and really continued it and in many ways accelerated it. And this stuff is difficult to hear because I'm you know, a big supporter of Obama and I love Obama, but you know, facts are facts and reality is reality. And I think Ackerman does a pretty devastating job of critiquing Obama's response. And you know, all of this within the context of that it's important to just note that here we are, you know, approaching the 20-year anniversary, and the greatest terrorist threat to the U.S. is U.S. white supremacist, white nationalist, American citizens, mostly white men, the type of people who took part in the January 6th insurrection and continue to plot against America. And that, again, is the irony, and, and again, makes the connection back to Timothy McVeigh, that the irony that in, in after all this, you know, almost three decades since the Oklahoma City bombing, the, you know, and all this crazy loss and madness, the real threat to America is still our own white nationalists and white supremacists. So crazy times, crazy stuff, not super fun. But um, obviously with what's going on currently in Afghanistan, that merits some attention. And I'll get to that right after the break. Until the philosophy which old one race superior and another inferior is finally and permanently discredited and abandoned everywhere is war it's a war That until they're no longer First class and second class citizens of any nation Until the color of a man's skin Is of no more significance Than the color of his eyes Miss a war Okay, so I'm going to come out right out of the gate here and say that I support Biden's decision to withdraw from Afghanistan. I don't know enough about the logistics and intelligence failures to know how badly they fucked up the withdrawal, but clearly they have made major mistakes, right? I'm not going to sugarcoat that. I also support the resettlement of a large number of Afghanis who worked with the U.S. to American soil, right? I think you know everybody who you know worked with us and we made a promise too that we would keep them safe, um, you know, should be resettled here. And uh, I'm fully supportive of that. And I hope they are resettled in my community and in my state. And in fact, my governor, Gavin Newsom, has said that California will have open arms to Afghanis being, you know, refugees. As a side note to that, it's been amazing, but not surprising to see the fascists across the right wing screaming about not letting any Afghans into the U.S. Um, fortunately, the Biden administration is giving them the middle finger, and it seems like right now they're setting the number at about 22,000 Afghanis um, that they're going to bring over. I'm totally happy if if that number is increased, and again, I'm happy if they're resettled You know, on my block. I would welcome them with open arms. Now, I want to 
take a moment to look at the, 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 the only counter argument that I've heard about why we should have stayed in Afghanistan that's compelling to me and not, you know, want withdrawn is some who argue that the cost of staying in Afghanistan was so low both in money and lives, that why don't we just stay there indefinitely? It wasn't on America's radar. If Joe Biden hadn't withdrawn, no one in America would be going, why haven't you withdrawn from Afghanistan, right? And if, you know, there's not, you know, there's not a lot of action in terms of, you know, violence that the, the military is experiencing. There aren't a lot of casualties. I don't know how many billions of dollars it is to keep our presence there, but given how rich we are and how many billions of dollars we throw around willy-nilly and all kinds of things, that argument makes some sense to me, right? Why pull out and destabilize the country when it wasn't that costless to stay and no one was really paying attention? I think that's wrong for two reasons. The first is that Trump made a deal with the Taliban, right? This is, you know, this is not getting the attention it really deserves, but Trump already made a deal. And that's what Biden is fulfilling, saying that we would leave. And if we went back on that deal, if Biden said, I'm ripping up this deal, we are staying indefinitely, not staying for another year, not staying for another five, but staying indefinitely from everything that I can understand reading here in the foreign policy establishment is that that would have meant the Afghan Taliban would have you know, declared open war on, on U.S. troops again, and it would have required an escalation so that it wasn't the choice between withdrawal or just kind of keep this really kind of tranquil situation going indefinitely, but it was withdrawal or escalate to another pretty intense combat with the Taliban. So that's reason number one why I think withdrawing um, was the right thing to do. Second, the Afghan government was so thoroughly corrupt and hated by the majority of the people that I think propping it up Propping it up would have just prolonged its inevitable collapse, right? The reality is, from everything I'm gathering, of course, there were some people who had high positions in the government or were working, you know, um, as auxiliaries to the government, living in Kabul, living relatively, you know, middle class lives. I'm sure their lives were a lot better before we withdraw. I don't want to deny that. But from what I gather, that government was so corrupt. I mean, they weren't even paying the military. The reason the military just melted away when the, the Taliban came is because they were like, fuck it, we're not even getting paid. Like, why am I going to risk my life against the Taliban when I'm not even getting a paycheck? And that the corruption was so systemic and so thorough that, again, the average Afghani, again, outside of a pretty small segment in the capital, just hated the government. And so my thought thinking is propping up a government that is hated by the majority of the people how is that going to be good in, in the long term? And so, look, I just want to say here, maybe I'm wrong. I'm open about this. I'm not an expert, but I'm trying to look at this through the eyes of other experts and, and make some basic conclusions. And again, the only argument for staying in Afghanistan that made any sense to me just seems belied by the facts. So now, one thing I want to say, although it's it's perhaps a little distasteful to talk about the politics of this when you know, people are being killed, etc. I just feel that it's important to just make a few quick comments on this. The first is, it's been amazing to see so much of the deep DC press corps go ballistic on Biden. It's so obvious that they've just been chomping at the bit, waiting to go after him, 
right? He's been pretty hard to go after, right? He's mild-mannered, no drama. You know, he's doing a pretty good job on COVID and the economy, all things considered. And here's, you know, some images they can say, Joe Biden's a failure. This is a travesty. This is chaos. This is worse than Saigon. And makes them feel good that they're not partisans, that they can go after a Democrat too. But it is so absurd, the hyperbolic nature of what they're saying. And I actually think they have the politics completely and utterly backwards. Look, the reality is most Americans haven't cared about Afghanistan for almost 20 years, okay? So to think that in 2022, next year, or let alone 2024, Americans are going to base their vote for Biden or the Democrats on what happened in Afghanistan in August 2021? I mean, to me, that's absurd. Unless something crazy, crazy happens that is directly linked back that most Americans experience, I think, you know, within weeks, if not months, you know, people are going to forget about this. I mean, again, I think that's tragic. But, you know, most Americans do not want endless war. And I think while I don't trust the American public on most things, I think they are right. And look, I just think the politics of this aren't good for Biden right now, that's for sure. But this notion that it's like some devastating, you know, chaos for his administration, I just think is absurd. You know, Um, look, global terrorism should have always been viewed as a matter of police action and perhaps targeted military intervention. That's what I think most Americans are coming to realize. The 9-11 bombers plotted in Germany. And there are terrorist cells all over the world, invading countries and killing thousands upon thousands of people to prevent terrorism is so absurd that it would really make George Orwell proud. Um, he's smiling in his grave somewhere when he reads, uh, you know, missives about that. So who loves the war on terrorism? Who has benefited these last 20 years? The military industrial complex and the contractors who have just raked in billions upon billions upon billions in profits for their weapons of mass destruction and the chaos. Remember, they win no matter what, right? As long as we keep doing endless war, it doesn't matter if we win the wars or lose the war. They win. The military-industrial complex is the big winner here, as well as our enemies around the world who love seeing us hurt ourselves and waste our resources. Now, before I wrap this segment up, Of course, I despise the Taliban, and the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan is going to be horrible, just like it was in Iraq, Libya, and Syria. And look, I hope, and this may be naive, that international pressure may cause the Taliban to back off from some of their most extreme behaviors. And maybe, just maybe, Afghan society won't revert back to where it was pre-2001. You know, it's important to remember that before 2001, right, the Soviets had invaded. And, you know, Afghan has been mired in 40 years of occupation and civil war. And, you know, before that, in the 1960s and 70s, you know, I have older friends that tell me that, you know, Afghanistan was a favorite place for American hippies. American hippies in the 60s and 70s were flocking to Afghanistan to go see the Buddhist shrines, the ones that the Taliban destroyed, to hang out and smoke hash and go to the bazaars. And it was a relatively, I don't want to oversell it, but it was a relatively, by, you know, by Middle Eastern standards, cosmopolitan and pretty, you know, small L liberal society. But again, 
You know, 40 years of, of, of endless occupation of war can destroy almost any amount of civility in any society. And look, I know what I'm saying from my wealthy enclave here in Central California may sound cavalier, right? There are people seriously suffering in Afghanistan. And I, but I'm just trying to be honest here, right? And honesty in America is rare, right? Americans often want to believe that we can fix everything and make it right if we just try hard enough, throw in some more money, throw in some more weapons, throw in some more bombs, throw in some more advisors, right? We can make it right. Americans can do it. That's a fucking fantasy. And it's one that I refuse to engage in. And it's how we got into this mess in the first place. So with that, I'll come back after the break with the antidote. Okay, so for the antidote today, I just want to kind of state a few obvious things and, and elaborate it a little. But the first is, you know, life, life is dangerous, right? There are no limits to the threats, both small, i.e. viruses, and large, you know, people and nation states that mean us harm, right? And there is no perfect safety, right? Nothing is perfectly safe. As soon as we step out into the world, there's all kinds of risks, again, both large and small. And so how we view these risks, navigate them, and mitigate them is going to have a lot to do ultimately with our quality of lives, right? And if we're too fearful and paranoid, if we go all on, you know, really all, all out on the, you know, on the anxiousness on that end of the spectrum, we do stupid things. And the, the global war on terror is absolutely one example of that. But even on an individual level, right, if we're anxious all the time, we're worried about every last little germ, every last little thing, that anxiety will eat us up inside and really make us miserable. And I think we probably all know people, whether it's hypochondriacs or people who are just scared of everybody or scared of travel or scared of, you know, um, you know, scared of climate change on every level. And again, I'm not saying these things aren't things to be scared of, but when it goes to an extreme and it ruins your life. It makes you unhealthy, and it makes you do unwise things. On the other end of the spectrum, though, of course, right, if we're too carefree and clueless and we just go about our lives like, hey, nothing's going to hurt me, nothing's going to happen to me, I can do whatever I want. You know, a lot of us probably know that from our youth, right, that kind of I'm going to live forever when you're 18 to, you know, 25. If we are on that end of the spectrum, you know, we can run some major catastrophes, right, both at the individual level and at the societal level, right? So both extremes, you know, being extremely fearful and anxious and extremely carefree, both of those can lead to pretty bad consequences, right? So finding the right balance is hard. It's elusive, it's frustrating, and it's never complete because there's never a perfect right answer of where is that balance. But again, falling into one of the extremes is the worst option which is what the U.S. has done for the past 20 years. So moving ahead, 
I just want us all to be mindful that searching for that balance to, is crucial to maintain a healthy society and to being a healthy individual, right? Taking, you know, um, judicial and sensible precautions, but then also just realizing that you got to live your life. And if we can do that as an individual and as a society, I think we're going to be a lot better off and hopefully we'll never repeat the mistakes of the past 20 years ever again. So with that, everybody, if you're enjoying the podcast, please rate it, share it with family, friends, and colleagues. Um, You can subscribe on Apple iTunes, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts app. And again, the the website is zombiedispatch.org if you want to kind of check out the media links, leave a comment, etc. So with that, everybody, stay safe, take care.